So good evening, everyone. Can you hear me well enough with the microphone this far away from me? Okay. So as was uh, just uh, shared with you, this evening's talk is about equanimity, balance and equipoise in the mind and the heart, living with the heart of greatness, even in times of stress, uncertainty, and turbulence. And we'll begin the talk this evening in a little bit uh, unusual way uh, for beginning a Dharma talk. So sit yourself comfortably. Settle in. Close your eyes if you usually meditate with eyes closed or if you usually meditate with them open, that's fine. And beginning our evening together as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisatta, this just about to be Buddha on that now famous night as he was protected within the great strength of his mindful presence which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation exploration accompanied by clear discernment this about to be Buddha supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability with an evenness and balance of receptive open-hearted presence as though he were an immovable mountain the mountain of equanimity In Taos, New Mexico, where I live, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. 
It's one amongst many high mountains surrounding the Taos Valley. This, next, this mountain is actually within uh, the Taos Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north end of town. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. It's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the great good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in every season, any time of the day or night, any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of different forms of life are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. And the mountain remains unshakable, unwavering, the mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached to anything. It isn't averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing and at the same time holding on to nothing. And so begins our exploration of equanimity, the Pali word for equanimity being upekka. Equanimity is a very powerful force in our practice and a very powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddha's teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis or uh, perfections of character to be cultivated. It's one of the four Brahma-viharas, one of the four divine abidings, and those being metta, unconditional kindness or friendliness. Karuna, which is compassion. Mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy. And the last of these four being equanimity, upekka. Equanimity is also one of the seven factors of awakening or seven factors of enlightenment 
And those are mindfulness, investigation, investigation of physical and mental states, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of the heart, the mind, to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external experience, internal and external formations, as they're classically called. And in the realm of feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feeling that's associated with all the arisings and changing and passing of all internal and external phenomena. In times of stress, turbulence, uncertainty, the Buddhist teachings offer us, I think, a pretty radical notion that when we cultivate an equanimous heart, an equanimous mind, maybe even in the most extreme internal or external circumstances, these external and internal circumstances don't hold strong sway over us. And some words from the 8th century uh, Buddhist monk Shantideva, he said it's not possible to control all external events. But if I simply control my mind, what need is there to control other things? The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning the equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states or as the Buddha often called them, cankers, he was very descriptive, graphic about his descriptions sometimes, uh, have been destroyed. Destroyed temporarily or destroyed completely, finally. And who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here, a meditator whose cankers are destroyed is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful, and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength, and ease of the mind and heart to remain centered, to remain 
unmoved, if you will, in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upeka, or equanimity, is onlooking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise, change, and pass. On looking, it sees them fairly, without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So we could say that the function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. Consequently, equanimity manifests as neutrality. Equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or the equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets what often feels like the great weightiness of greed and the great weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember when I was a child that I loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw, or we used to call it the teeter-totter, with another child. Both of us just suspended, perfectly balanced in midair in our teeter-totter seat. And there was always a certain kind of uh, happy and almost breathtaking light and uplifted feeling inside me when these moments would happen. The poet T.S. Eliot said it quite beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the still point, the point, the still point, There would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness, great spaciousness and strength of mind and strength of heart. So, to bring us a very practical understanding of this, 
we can use the metaphor, as the Buddha did, of using a spoonful of salt, putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. Well, because of the very small container, the water will be very salty, extremely salty, harsh, and undrinkable. On the other hand, if we uh, put a spoonful of salt into a very large body of water, I'm not sure what the largest body of water, the ocean here, uh, close by, uh, the Atlantic Ocean, for instance, uh, the Buddha used the Rio Grande, uh, not the Rio Grande, that's in Taos. Um, <laughs> he used the Ganges River as the example. If we put it into the Atlantic Ocean, we of course won't have the same effect. It won't have the same effect. And it's already salty anyway. So. <laughs> because of the enormous, enormous amount of water, the great fluidity and the great spaciousness that the salt is poured into. I should have picked a non-salty body of water, but I don't know what that is here. So, <laughs> And as we all know, of course, life can be quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the great spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can, in fact, look on at all of life's ongoing, everyday experiences, as well as all of the subtleties of the internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our meditation practice, to look on with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, in relationship to equanimity as a factor of awakening, to look on with a specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, which may be any of the other three divine abidings, or the immeasurables, as they're sometimes called, such as unconditional kindness, metta, compassion, karuna, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, or any of the six awakening factors other than the seventh, which is equanimity, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration. So looking on with a specific neutrality. It also may include looking on such qualities of heart and mind as faith, patience. Looking on at each of these experiences, each of these states of heart, of mind, are met with and seen, known, looked on at evenly looked on at evenly through the balance of an equanimous heart and mind. So as I mentioned just a little bit ago, equanimity basically manifests as a neutral relationship to our experiences of body and mind. There's a really wonderful little book 
uh, of teachings from the 12th century Zen master Dogen called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the Tenzo in, in Zen Buddhism, in Japanese Zen Buddhism, and our relationship to food to teach us, and in this case to teach us about equanimity. And of course we uh, can bring this teaching immediately close to us in our own life when we're home cooking for ourselves or friends or family. And so these are Dogen's words. Handle even a a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and to settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on. A dish is not necessarily superior because you have prepared it with choice ingredients. Nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind, a pure heart, without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. And he says more, he says, in practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same, not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk or the mouth of a Dharma student or a meditation practitioner is like an oven. Now this next metaphor comes from the time of Dogen. And you'll know what I mean in a minute when I read it. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking, without distinction, our mouths should do the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So, how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity to relate to all things with equanimity? So, a simple example in relationship to your meditation practice, maybe even in your sit this evening before the talk. So you're sitting, and at one point you notice that the the mind and body are pretty calm. Maybe there's even some degree of tranquility, some feeling of serenity. And this is known. And you recognize that the attention, the focusing power of the mind, concentration, is pretty evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is, maybe maybe the breath or maybe the sensations in the body. 
or maybe the experience of calm itself. The mind isn't listless, it's not agitated, but rather it's interested and pretty appropriately energized. At times like this, there isn't any interest in or any necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In relationship to our practice and our life as our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing, acknowledging, and just knowing, noting that this is what's occurring, even if it's just for a few moments or maybe longer. Knowing that these qualities, these factors of mind and heart are in place for however long. And very important, and certainly not always so easy, doing this without any attachment. That's the hard part, but necessary. This process uh, and aspect of practice is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state of equanimity. Consequently, contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor uh, for the mind when it's in this mode was one is like the charioteer who looks on, looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Well, doesn't quite fit for most of us. Uh, so more likely in our case, we could say one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity at a car that's running along evenly and smoothly when it's set in cruise control. And we're able to see and to know, to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. And, of course, as we all know from our own life and from our meditation practice experience, until equanimity is really, truly matured, we lose and we regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago now, for the whole, uh, um, <coughs> excuse me, of the last two weeks of a very long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. And I practiced it in uh, the way that's uh, it's done with Brahma-Vihara practice or the Divine Abidings practice um, by silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again, first directing it to myself and then ongoing through all of these same categories that are used for metta practice, which some of you probably know. I'm not going to go through all that at this moment. but So the phrase that I used, the practice phrase that I used for this two weeks of practice, morning, noon, and night, seven days a week, (laughs) 
14 days, for 14 days approximately. I am the heir or the owner of my karma, meaning I am the heir or the owner of my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. So that was what I repeated continually for two weeks. And by the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, an evenness and a neutrality in the heart and mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, well, there's quite a lot of equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, hmm, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) And the thinking kept going. If this was a Zen retreat, any good Zen teacher would do something startling, creatively startling to uh, check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat. (laughs) Vipassana teachers don't do things like that, right? So then all the thoughts just dissolved, disappeared. Well, later that day, uh, that same day, I was startled (laughs) in, uh, we could say, true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though actually the note was from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the dana, the generosity talk, to the retreatants tomorrow. Well, at that point, I was not uh, teaching the Dharma at all. It had nothing to do with teaching it. I was just practicing. For a moment, equanimity, this wonderfully developed equanimity, flew right out the window. My heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew right in. (laughs) And my thought was, I can't. I can't do this. I can't do this now. My old habit of fear, I can't. I've been silent for so many weeks, so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow retreatants and speak. Impossible. And then, just a few moments later, wasn't immediate, but fairly soon, the heart and the mind relaxed and recognized what had just occurred. And then the thought came in, ah, ah, yes. This is my equanimity test, of course. And I can do it. And I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude, appreciation came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing 
But of course, as I already said, until equanimity has matured, we lose and we regain our balance and equipoise. Again and again, we lose it and regain it over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, dislike, resentment, and self-judgment that can sometimes manifest as guilt, disapproval, and the feeling that I'm not good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment or the fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear, resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval, all of this subsides. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer, really true neutrality, there's nothing for greed or aversion to stick to when they start to arise. So, a brief personal story. When I first moved to Taos, New Mexico, uh, quite a number of years ago, um, I noticed when I was walking down our one main street uh, uh, that the store windows, the shop windows, had many, many beautiful things, handmade things in these windows. And I was enjoying them, looking at them, and at times got quite infatuated with them, and at times thinking, I want, I want, I want, I want that, I want that, I want that. And sometimes even the delusion that I need, I need, I need, you know, that very painful uh, must-have mind. So I decided to make a practice out of this uncomfortable experience that I was having over and over again. So I practiced walking down the street. It took quite a long time. I didn't do it every day, but I walked along and I looked in the windows and I watched my mind and my body. After quite some time, I found that I could look at all of these beautiful handmade things and appreciate them, enjoy them, and also with great appreciation for the human beings that made them, how incredible that people can do these kinds of things without the feeling of, I want, I need. And it was a great relief. And it was actually quite life-changing overall for me. His Holiness the Dalai Lama tells a story about himself being taken to various shops somewhere, I think it was in London, that sell all kinds of little tiny mechanical parts, which some of you may know is a, of a particular interest of his. He likes to take, or he used to, I don't know if he still does, take apart watches and then put them back together again. 
So he said at first, as he, w- he was taken there because his friend knew this about, about what he liked, mechanical things, small mechanical things. He said at first he was really just simply interested in seeing all of these things. And then he said that he noticed a kind of inner feeling of wanting them all. And he said followed quite quickly by realizing that he had absolutely no idea what any of them were for. (laughs) And he said that at that point, he just let go of the wanting. I'm sure that every one of us in this room have experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed, in the midst of dislike or resentment or anger or fear or disappointment. This kind of glossing over or ignoring these states. It's this it doesn't really matter attitude or it's, it's just fine attitude or I'm just fine which actually is often accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away from a mental, a physical contraction which in fact is not equanimity at all it's indifference Indifference is called the near enemy, the kind of looks like but near enemy because it isn't equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upeka. And of course, each one of us also knows from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or anger or fear or disappointment or resentment, it's extremely difficult or maybe isn't even possible to look on at those moments with a really true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear presence of mind. Not on dullness, not on indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood It's not produced by exertion, and it's definitely not created by the intellect. It's really the result. It's one of the fruits of our practice. It's the fruit of training the mind, training the heart, through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, loving-kindness, and compassion. True equanimity is our capacity to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, what the Buddha called the eight worldly winds, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and or distinction, disrepute or disrespect or disregard, these flip-flops which come to us, come our way throughout our life. 
True equanimity is our capacity to meet all of this with a heart, with a mind that's strong, that's fearless, centered, and at the same time at ease. True equanimity is able to meet each of these worldly winds, which may certainly often feel like, sometimes feel like harsh tests. And it's very quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources, the resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. And some words from the Buddha. Develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame. But do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's um, there's an amazing practice that... Uh, was occasionally, and I don't know if it's still practiced, but at one point it was occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. I do not recommend this practice, but we can take it as a a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection That's really one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from Frank Waters' book called The Book of the Hopi, as told to him by Ko Waima. There were all kinds of snakes. Rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up on his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed they had found their friend looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. This is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, to the heart, getting seduced by and caught up and trapped, as it often feels like, in states of fear, greed, or aversion. It also possesses the power of renewing itself, 
but really only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind getting caught up and seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And there's one particular understanding that I'd like to spend just a few moments, uh, a little bit of time with you this evening exploring, in that as it develops uh, along the way of our practice and eventually ripens into deep understanding, ripens into insight, it's one of the roots of equanimity. And this is our growing understanding our growing clarity and understanding how the vicissitudes, the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of karma. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, suffering, and the experiences of ease are the results of our karma. The results of our actions are actions of thought, speech, and deed right here and now, and then on back and back and back. We could say this is our karma. And I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding about karma. So I hope this will help to clarify some of that misunderstanding. We could say that we're born, we spring out of the womb of karma. And even though we may or we might not like it at times, we're undeniably the heirs of our karma, every one of us. So for instance, in a simple everyday example, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control of it. And yet, in some way, it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably, returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that with everything that happens and the ease or the dis-ease in our mind, our heart, that this is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life, both internally and externally. Our suffering and our happiness in this lifetime, in any given movement, is really due to our own mind, our motivations, and our responses or our reactions to phenomena. It's really not due to our wishes for ourselves and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. And this is sometimes hard to understand, but allow it in. (laughs) As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so it's the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that, in fact, we really 
only meet ourselves, what is there to fear? The heart, the mind begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can, in fact, change our mind. That, in fact, we're not trapped on the karmic wheel, running around and around and around. But, of course, as every one of us have experienced, fear, uncertainty, insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to know and to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions in response, not in reaction. And as we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might seem like some hardship in our current life or hardship in the larger world. And of course, this practice itself, this amazing, incredible training of the mind and heart, a very good deed, really the best, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspect of each of our lives. One of the things that's been really important for me in understanding karma is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never, ever too late. I think many of us have been conditioned, we could say, to think, oh, too bad, it's too late. Nope, it's never, ever too late. And for myself, I sometimes say, well, an old dog can learn new tricks. (laughs) And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point, we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and the evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than the increase of the good. And as this becomes more and more a certainty in our own mind, in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and more serene, and we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, with the development and blossoming of a growing degree of equanimity, which the Buddha called relative equanimity, we find that we, in fact, do have the strength to endure when that's what's 
being called for. And we're able to see more and more clearly when that's what's called for. And we're able to act with clarity when that's what's called for. And we have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again, but begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of karma can imbue us with a pretty powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. And so we practice. Maybe sometimes in a retreat for some of you. We practice at home. We practice with our practice community, our sangha, like this. And maybe you have other groups you practice with in the midst of our daily lives. And we practice with sincerity and with diligence. And we sit with a growing understanding and the blossoming of insight. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all of this, it's inevitable that the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us. It's our karma, we could say. So, closing the talk this evening with uh, a short piece from the Buddha, from um, a collection of, uh, it's called the Udana, it's a collection of inspired utterances from the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her? How can suffering come to him? And let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma Dharma.